0: We're starting a brand new sermon series today titled The Servant King, and we are going to be studying Mark. So please open with me Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness "'Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight.' John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey." And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him.
1: Well, hey, good morning. Uh, It's good to be back with you after a five-week series. Um, My name is Nate. If I haven't met you yet, it's good to be with you. So we begin series to the gospel of Mark today. And if you've been at Redeemer City even like five seconds, you know, you've heard the word gospel, right? We're very familiar with that term. We say that a lot. And let me put it this way. Wherever you're coming from today, if you hear that word, honestly, you probably think of it in terms of a religious overtone, right? It might be something, obviously, it's in the Bible. It says gospel here. It's the second word. But Did you know this, that when when Mark began to write down an eyewitness testimony about Jesus' life, the gospel, that term, had nothing religious to do with it. Uh, In fact, uh, not too far away from the time of Jesus, there's a calendar inscription that uses the word gospel, and it was to mark the birthday of the emperor Octavian, and it was announcing his birth. In other words, it was was news about something that was happening in the world that was going to bring a new situation to the world. Things would not be the same. And this is what Mark picks up to describe the events and circumstances around Jesus. In other words, Mark doesn't say this, the beginning of advice for how to live according to Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. Rather, he begins with the word Gospel. He is announcing news, news that introduces a whole new situation into the world. And let me tell you what, if you'll understand what's happening, what's happening as Mark begins to talk about this, it will change, and I use this term intentionally, it will change everything about your life. I'm not understating it, it will change everything. So what is the news? Well, here it is. Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom, and he's inviting you and I to follow him. That's the news. Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom, and he's inviting you and I to follow him. And over the next, I'm going to say it's six to seven months, we're going to close this series down, Mark 16, last chapter, on Easter, okay? So it's going to be a, we're going to be in this for a while, but I'm stoked for it. But let me put it this way. If you're single, if you're married, if you're a retiree, if you're a young mom, if you're rich or you're poor, if you're a teenager, this news is for you. In other words, it's for everyone, and we begin today with the prologue, the first thirteen verses. Uh, do any of you remember watching any of the Star Wars movies? And you know the very beginning, right? It's it's the same thing every movie. It's those those words come up on the screen, right? And they're kind of tilted, and the music is playing. And it introduces you to the story. It's telling you what's happening, what's happening as this whole kind of, you know, good versus evil kind of begins. That's what Mark is doing here. He's setting the stage. And there are three things that Mark shows us about the stage he tells us about the identity of Jesus, he tells us about the mission of Jesus. And he tells us about the method of Jesus. And here's why that's important. Because we're going to see that for those who follow him, who he is actually changes our identity. Secondly, we're going to see his mission is actually going to be the very thing that should root our lives and our purpose. And thirdly, his methods, how he goes about it, is the exact same way we're called to follow him. So, let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, I just pray this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our collective hearts, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the identity of Jesus... Um, Mark kicks off the whole book with a thesis statement, all right? And here's what it is, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. By the way, this is his only comment throughout the entire book about anything to the stories. This is it. This is his one thesis statement. This is it. This is what the whole thing's about, And you'll notice two things. One is, he gives Jesus two titles. One, he's the Christ, it's not his last name, okay? And secondly, he's the Son of God. Now, here's what's really sweet in the Gospel of Mark, he actually frames the entire book around those two titles. So, at the very middle of the book, Jesus says to the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ. Okay? The very end of the book, Mark 15, Jesus is on the Christ, excuse me, on the cross, he's dying, and a Roman guard sees how he dies. And Mark records what he says. And here's what he says: Truly, this man was the son of God. The whole book is structured around Jesus' identity. So, what do these titles mean? Well, in one sense, we're going to figure that out as we go along. But let me give you a brief summary Christ, it's a Greek term meaning uh, an anointed royal figure. It was another term that had rich depth and meaning to the Jewish nation, it was referring to the, the, the long awaited king that God had promised. So as Mark writes and he says, Jesus Christ, he's the Christ, Mark is saying this long-awaited king has come, he's here, it's Jesus. But the second is the title Son of God. And that title gets its meaning from the context. It actually speaks to Jesus being divine. So we'll see this throughout, but like one example is in Mark 2... Jesus says to someone that he, will, he, he forgives their sins. And the religious leaders of the day, they hear that and they say, hey, wait, hold on. Only God can do that. And Jesus doesn't retract himself. He says, yeah, I know. He, in my own words, he's like, how about them apples? Like, I know, I can do this. So just for a moment, think with me. Right from the beginning, Mark is saying this about the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited king who is the divine son of God. I mean, that's quite a thesis statement. What do you think about that? This is an incredible claim. A king who has come who is God. You know, what would it take you to believe this? Or maybe to put it another way, what would it take you to confirm that this is actually who Jesus is? Uh, this last summer, um, I had to renew my driver's license. And if you know, they're making this transition to like the real ID. And so I went in to the, you know, DOT, and um, I had to bring like three proofs of my identification of who I was. It wasn't just like bring your old driver's license and you move through. It was like, you need three things. Like it was like passport, I need a billing address, I need something else to demonstrate this is who Nate Hobart is in order to get the real ID. It's what we do, right? In order to trust that that's who I am. Well, Mark does something a little bit similar. In the prologue, he gives us three voices that confirm that this is who Jesus is. So in verses two and three, the first voice is the Old Testament. He quotes the prophet Isaiah And actually, it's a a fused text that actually includes a portion of Malachi. It's a section that talks about preparing the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And when it says this, prepare the way of the Lord, Mark is saying this, the Lord's here. It's Jesus. He's come. He's the fulfillment of this passage. The second voice is what we see mentioned in verses 2 and 3, that there's a messenger that, per, that would precede the Lord coming. And in verses 4 and 8, we see this is John the Baptist. Now, one of the things that's interesting about what Mark does here is he tells us what Mark is wearing. I love this. Don't skip over this detail. In verse 6, it says this. Um, now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Let me put it this way. Mark is not trying to be an influencer. Okay? He's not trying to set up new fashion. It's not like the new mom jeans thing or something like that, right? Like he but the question is why? Why does he put what Mark's or excuse me what, what John's wearing? I'll put it this way, a number of years ago uh, our family and I were in New York City and we were leaving for the day. Like, we just spent the whole day there. We, we, we leave the subway. And um, all of a sudden, we see 12 to 15, probably, I don't know, like 20-somethings. And they're all dressed the same way. And then we figure out what's going on. There's a Taylor Swift concert happening that night. They're all dressed like T-Swift. They're all Swifties. That's what's happening here. It's not Taylor Swift. But John is dressed like someone. In fact, he's dressed like the prophet Elijah's attire in 2 Kings 1.8. And the reason why that's significant is because the last words on the last page of the Old Testament are these from Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In short, Mark is saying, the messenger has arrived, the one that is to precede the Lord is here. The last days are upon us. God is doing something new. And the third voice is in verse 11, as Jesus is being baptized by John. A voice from heaven, God the Father says, "You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased." We, we, among other things, we get a glimpse into the mysterious yet true picture of God being three persons, distinct and yet one God. But what I want you to see in this passage is: what is the Father doing? He's doting over his son. He's doting. This is my beloved son. So, as we begin, think for a moment about this. Mark is trying to show us with three distinct voices that testify that Jesus really is the Christ and that Jesus really is the Son of God. This isn't a personal opinion. These are accounts that are to demonstrate Jesus' identity. And this question will be repeated throughout, but suffice to say, if you're exploring Christianity, here's the question for you. Who is Jesus? Listen, uh, if I could have a moment with you. There's, we live in a very distracted age, and we also live in a very pluralistic age. We live in an age of information where there's so much coming at us, but if I could give you one question that I would challenge you to give yourself to, really. The question is, who is Jesus? That is central. And let me put it this way. Houston Smith, he's not a Christian. He wrote a book called The World of Religions a Number of Years Ago. It was used for universities. He, he said this, how many people have provoked this question, not who are you with respect to name, origin, or ancestry, but what are you? What order of being do you belong to? What species do you represent? Not Caesar, not Napoleon, or even Socrates, only to Jesus and Buddha. And here's the distinction. All the time, people would come up to Buddha and they'd say, they would want to worship him as God. And he would rebuff them. He would say, no, don't look to me, look to my teaching. Jesus, later on in Luke, remember doubting Thomas? The risen Christ appears to him. He bows down and he says, My Lord and my God to Jesus. And Jesus takes it. He doesn't rebuff it. He says, Everything points to me. If you're not a Christian, let me say this Would you please consider in our frenetic, distracted, pluralistic day, would you heed Houston Smith, who's not even a Christian, who can look across? the span of history, and go, there's actually only two, and actually only one who's ever claimed to be God, and people have wanted to worship him. That needs to give your attention to. And let me tell you, the Gospel of Mark is a great place to start. You want a reliable source. Out of the four Gospels, it's the one that's the earliest, probably written between 60 and 70 AD. Most commentators say, written by Mark, who is the secretary of sorts for Peter, who walked with Jesus from day one in his public ministry. In other words, they walked with him, they heard him, they saw him. Do you want to know who he is? Start here. But but I'll say this too, secondly, for a Christian, this also has something to say about your identity. Jesus' identity radically alters your identity. We live in a day which the dominant narrative is this. You reject any outward claims... You look within and you construct your own identity. You construct it. And this is expressed in gender, sexuality, other times it's vocation. But however it's expressed today, here's what what the culture says you have to come up with it, you have to achieve it, you have to validate yourself. The gospel is completely different. It is a brand new identity, and is not achieved, it is received. And that is a huge difference. And In the New Testament, the followers of Christ spoke of this, that they are adopted into a family. And that you're now sons, you're in the family, it means you belong. And how this relates to right here in Mark 1, think about this way. If you're in Christ, do you understand how the Father looks at the Son is exactly how he looks at you? you understand that he delights in you? Zephaniah 3 says that he actually sings over you. This changes things. Let me just share personally how it's changed me. In my first position as a church, as a college pastor, our large group event would happen on Thursday nights. And the five minutes before that event were the most exhilarating, and the most anxious. And why? Because in the next hour or so, I would give a talk to college students, and depending upon how that went, I would either feel great about myself, or the next day, I would feel not so great about myself. Why? I'm no different than you. I am functionally trying to achieve I wrestle with this. I try to perform to make it as it were. And do you know how exhausting that is? I mean, it's great when you perform really well, but then I realize i got to be up next week. It could be a complete dud. It's exhausting trying to achieve an identity. Some of you, vocationally, you're on the up and up. You're exhausted, you're overworked. You know what it's like. And listen, don't you see your job, that relationship desk, your family, your grades, whatever it is, the letters before your name, if that's what you run to functionally for your identity, you're actually not living out your true self. Because in the gospel, in Christ, it's no longer what you do, it's what's been done in Christ. And you have a father who dotes and delights over you. And that changes everything. That changes how you live. You're living from being accepted and being delighted, not living to achieve that. Listen, I'll put it this way. If you understand and you grow in this identity in Christ, it's why we gather, it's why we confess, it's why we sing, because it has to be worked in. Because every day it's the default setting. We're trying to achieve something. But here's what happens. As it works your way into your life, that means this, it doesn't matter how much you make. It also doesn't matter if you look back at regret at your life. It actually means if you're building your identity on Christ and not constructing it, here's what it means, if you have him, you have everything. Because in him, you have a father who looks down at one of his children, and he's doting on you. He loves you. But secondly, this passage shows us the mission of Jesus. You know, in setting up the gospel by, by beginning with a quotation from Isaiah, fused with Malachi, Mark has not only said that Jesus' identity is found there, but also his very mission the very storyline of what's happening in the Old Testament, it's being fulfilled in Jesus. So what is happening? What's happening in Malachi and Isaiah? Well, put it this way, Malachi and Isaiah were both prophets in their day who were writing a time in which Israel was in exile. Because of their rebellion and unfaithfulness, God had enabled Babylon to come in and take them out of the promised land and move them 1,678 miles away. And they were now living in Babylon, away from Jerusalem. And one of the things that happens in both Isaiah and Malachi is God makes promises to those in exile that he's going to come someday and rescue them so, listen to what it says in Isaiah 43 through 4. It says this A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for a God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. In Babylon, there was a ceremonial highway called the Way of Marduk. It was the name of their God. <clears throat> and when they were victorious, they would parade those who they were victorious over and praise their God for overcoming them down the central ceremonial highway. And Isaiah is saying this. God's gonna come, and he's gonna build a highway. All the way from Babylon, all the way back to Jerusalem. And it's gonna be one in which we're gonna be victorious. God's we're gonna be victorious over them. And God's gonna bring us home. Are you catching the theme? When Jesus shows up on the scene, Here's the mission of Jesus. Jesus is going to liberate through mercy and judgment a people who are in exile because of their rebellion and sin and bring them home. That's the mission of Jesus. When he shows up, that's the story. Well, what does that mean for us? Let me put it this way. In the larger context of Scripture, there's actually another exile that happened earlier. At the very beginning in Genesis three, we see a good God create a good world, and our forebears said, "I want to be God. I want to be in charge." And we have followed them and followed them in that. And because of that, they were exiled out of God's presence. But God, from the very beginning, said, "I'm going to make a way home." And therefore, Mark, as he sets the stage, He's saying this, the entire world is in exile because of sin. And Jesus has come to liberate through mercy and judgment and bring us home. Put it this way, if you're exploring Christianity, here's what I'd say, you know this world is broken, right? I mean, some of you, you know this because you grew up in a family that was so dysfunctional. You feel so wounded by the family you grew up in. Others of you, you look out and you see the injustice that is right up in our grill every day, that we read about, that we experience. Or maybe it's just even a settled fear that at any moment you could lose what you love most. What I want you to realize is that the scriptures are saying this that all of that you're experiencing, it all goes back to that first story where our forebears rebelled against God and they hid. And do you know what God's response to them was? It wasn't, What have you done? It was this Where are you? Where are you? Christian, let me ask you this. What story are you living in? Where do you get your sense of purpose? Jesus invites us to live in the story of the kingdom he is bringing, which brings liberation from exile. How are you living into that story? Let me put one application point on this. Uh, this is not an individual project, living into that story. This is a communal project. So just real flat out, we started city groups this week. And listen, these groups are more than just, it's not anything less than coming around the scripture. And by the way, some, typically some pretty good food, I'll, I'll be honest. But it's, it's more than that. It's orienting our lives to the gospel and the identity. It's, it's the identity of being a servant. It's the identity of being family, learning to love one another. It's the identity of being a sent one, one who is sent out to declare this message. It's the identity of being a learner, trying to figure out what it is in our station in life to follow him, and we do that collectively together. What, let me ask you this. What are going to be the signs of us living out this story this year together? That's the question. That's why we gather this week. That's what we gather for the weeks to come. We're trying to live into this story. And it's a group project. All right. Lastly, the method of Jesus. I'll summarize it in one word. Serve. That's the method of Jesus. And we see this in at least two places. In Mark 1.12 you'll notice the Spirit immediately drives Jesus out into the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan. There's wild animals. This is not safe territory. But Jesus follows the Spirit. And why? Let me put it this way. Israel, in the Old Testament, was called God's son. And in the Exodus, they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering. And Jesus, who is the true son, is now going to be tempted for 40 days. But where Israel failed, he will succeed. But secondly, you also notice right before this, Jesus goes out to be baptized. John has just said, by the way, um, I'm not even fit to like, undo his his sandal. But Jesus goes and is baptized by him. Why is Jesus being baptized? Do you know what that means? When people went out to be baptized by John, you know what they were saying? They are saying, we're under judgment because of our sin. And we need mercy. Jesus never does not need mercy. He's spotless. He's perfect. So why is he going out? He's identifying with you. He's identifying with me. Listen to what Hebrews says. He had to to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. I'll put it this way. In the act of baptism, Jesus is saying this. I have come to rescue my people through serving them in mercy and not bringing judgment, but bearing their judgment. I will take what they deserve. This is the kind of king that I am. You see, don't you see, you and I, we need more than advice, we need more than an example. We need a savior. We need a king who is good and mighty and can fight the battles that you and I are overwhelmed by. And it means this: if you're not a Christian. You need to understand this. This news means it's not about trying. It's not about performing. It is about trusting in Jesus, relying on Him, allowing Him, actually, this King, to serve you. And here's what this means for us as a church it means living into this mission will bring challenges and difficulties. I was telling my daughter the other day that oftentimes it's actually when you become a Christian that life gets really hard. Do you know why that is? We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come, but suffice it to say, you're in a new kingdom. And the kingdom of God stands opposed to the kingdom of the world. And that means this. As my friend Brian Gerge puts it, you can either acquiesce to the kingdom of this world buy into its stories, go along with the flow, or you can live in the greater story of the kingdom. And that will bring difficulties. In fact, that will oftentimes lead you up to crosses. In fact, that is exactly where it led Jesus. But here is the good news. Jesus has already gone before us. He has already led the way Through the wilderness, and he promises to serve his people in the battles ahead. And when those challenges come, here's the question what will you do? And this hits everything, every part of your life. What will you do when it comes? I'll give you one example. Recently, I was talking to a friend, and they're looking at their past. And it's just, they have a lot of regret, and they have a lot of shame. They're telling me about it. And as they were talking, I'm a pastor, so I think about other pastors and what they've said at these moments. It recalled a quote by Martin Lloyd Jones. And this is what it says We must never look at any sin in our past life in any way except that which leads us to praise God and to magnify his grace in Christ Jesus. It is a very sin to allow the past which God has dealt with to rob us of our joy and our usefulness in the present and in the future. Don't you see? Even in the midst of that one's personal shame, it is going to the one who has gone before and been victorious. And in so doing, it actually enables you. It enables you to press in and be useful even now to serve him. Listen, if you're suffering, if you're hopeless, if you are full of shame, if you are dealing with whatever it might be, do you understand? You've got to figure out how it all points to Christ. And you've got to learn to rest and rely on him and lead, let him lead you as you follow him into this mission. So there's the good news. Jesus has come to inaugurate a new kingdom and he invites you and I to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we uh, confess that we uh, get confused. We get distracted. Sometimes we don't even like to listen to you. But I pray during this series that you would shape us as a people. or that our identity would be rooted in you that our sense of purpose and life mission would be rooted in you. That the way we live, the method we would put down our deadly doing and our deadly trying, and we would rest in you and what you've done. And that would propel us forward. And we ask this all in your name, amen. Well, as we continue this morning, we do so just remembering what Jesus did on the night he was betrayed. He gathered his disciples. He grabbed a loaf of bread and said, "This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And afterwards he took the cup. He said, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins." Don't you see, friends, this is the part where we rely and rest in the one who's been victorious. So remember and rejoice. As you're ready, you can come down the side aisles, grab elements, return to your seat, and partake as you're ready. And we'll continue to worship. You can come as you're ready.